Hello everybody, and welcome back to a return episode of the old style of Mangum Reads. I'm Spencer, and joining me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I am so excited to be back, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to have you, Sarah. Uh-huh. Good to be back. <laughs> mm-hmm. No more movies for us. We're returning to good old-fashioned short stories. And for our recommendation this week, we turn to BJ. BJ, what did you give us? Um, so we're actually going to be doing a total of six uh, short ish stories they vary they vary considerably um kind of like stephen king i think the uh given prompt was short story to novella and some of them err on the side of well i think it technically can be a novella um (laughs) and some were a little bit more towards the here's a a brief little taste and we have uh one of those today that was a little bit more closer to a short story than a um, overblown novella. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have is, um, sorry, and so the the entire thing uh, that we're going to be reading is the forward collection. Um, basically, um, it was uh, Blake something. He wrote uh, a couple of things. I'm <laughs> blanking on, blanking on like, you know, who, who who's the one that put it together? Um, Blake Crouch. Thank you, Blake Crouch. Um, And so we have uh, six different stories, uh, including Blake Crouch. And uh, basically it was an idea that he came up with, apparently, while he was driving in Colorado to have a bunch of different authors go with the prompt of uh, new technology, essentially having some effect on the world and then writing about it. and so it's sort of supposed to be technology that we have or on the cusp of uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, some of the authors were like, that's awesome. I'm going to do exactly that. And some of them were like, I will write you a science fiction speculative fiction. And you will like it because I am very good. Because I am in K. Jemison. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so that's what we've that's what we've got going on here, and these were done exclusively for Amazon, right? Uh, yes, I believe so, and and so they were also like immediately produced for Audible as well, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was really nice is it's included in Prime Reading, so like you didn't have to have an Audible subscription or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I would have really loved to have seen that initial table read of where they're sharing their stories and they all turned into Cape Jameson. Does anyone point out to her that she's just not on theme at all and just did her own thing? Uh, I think at this point, um, with the number of literary wins that she's had in the past five years, they sort of go, that's awesome. Thank you for contributing. And hopefully this will bump up our numbers. We're just happy to have you here. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's the story we're going to end our series with, right? Mm-hmm. Which that's I'm very much looking forward to. Um, so oh. which one are we doing today? So today we have Ark uh, by Veronica Roth. I am completely unfamiliar with Veronica Roth, but this story makes me uh, interested in some of her other work. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the authors we read, I go, okay, well, that was cool. I don't, I don't need to explore your catalog. Yeah, I've never read the Divergent trilogy either. Sarah, are you familiar with anything she's done? I am not. I mean, I've heard of her. I've seen her in stores. Actually, hold on. Did she write... Um, actually, I think I just read a book by her, and I have forgot that I did that. <laughs> that is about have, as on-brand as you can get. I, I don't remember what it was about. I don't re- remember... Wait a minute. I know who the author is. Yeah, no, I did. Um, I just this summer read her book, The Chosen Ones, which I think I was telling both of you about uh, a little you did, bit. Yeah. Um, about kind mm-hmm. of what happens to superheroes um, after they have saved the world. And mm-hmm. it was really good. Cool. Now that I remember that is... who she was, I just had a vision like of her name on the front of a book and was like, oh, yes, I do, in fact, own this. <laughs> well, she's a relatively young author. I mean, I think the Divergent Trilogy actually came out while she was still in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she's it's one of those series of where you got a movie deal before the entire series was even published. Like she got the first one out and it's like, we're buying this now. And I think like the first bo- the first book has actually been adapted, but I have never watched that movie. Uh, it looks like they're, all three films have come out, uh, 2014, 2015, and 2016. Um, and that is kind of impressive that you actually have an author that is keeping up with 
the presumed release schedule and uh, the media deal that they also made. She was still in school. It was viewed as homework. Um, and they, they didn't. Apparently, the budget was three hundred, about three hundred million. And the box office total ended up being, you know, close to eight or a little bit above seven and a half. So it did reasonably money. well. I I don't know that I'd ever want to sample it, but or the movies and the books. I just feel like it's one or the other. Mm. There's some exceptions, probably. I'm not sure Lord of the Rings is one of them, but I'm sure there are some exceptions. Mm-hmm. Well, to bring it back to our other podcast, um, Terry and I are watching the Harry Potter movies again right now. So, <laughs> how, how gleeful are you? It is my everything in these trying times, Spencer. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, for this story in particular, I, I kind of I, I kind of like to do this now because it's been so much fun to see where there's one odd man out in terms of liking a story and mm. see them trying to justify it over the course of a podcast. But Sp- Spencer, did you dislike this this short story, which I find very funny? We're going to find out here in a second. Um, I'm curious as to everyone's initial views before we get into our recap and going through themes and all the fun stuff. So, BJ, you recommended it. What did you think of this short story? Um, in like, you know, ten words or less. Let's keep it short. Do I have to count them now? So, um, I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, of the entire uh, six series, I think this was in my top half. Sarah? I loved this story. Um I would actually say that this is probably my second favorite story out of all of them. Um, and I'm very excited to talk about why and why the internet did not like it. <laughs> because they're wrong? Yes. Um, so end of podcast, we can all go home now. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be one of those podcasts where we all gush over the same work then. Because mm-hmm. this is the kind of story that is catnip for me. Mm-hmm. This kind of Finding optimism in the middle of melancholy is just a story I always eat up, and this does it very well. Particularly the narration um, by uh, Evan Rachel Wood. She does a beautiful job of hitting on the kind of tone the story runs with. And there are lots of plants. Spencer, there are lots of plants. I love the plants. There are lots of plants, and it brings back so many fond memories of me of watching my parents diligently try and fail to keep their orchids alive (laughs) as I was growing up. Yeah, I am currently looking at one very sad sack orchid that I can't figure out what's going on with. So, um, yeah. There's, there's a point in the story where they reference the orchid hospital, and that's the exact phrase my parents would use to describe whenever they sh- sent their orchids off to a nursery to try to bring them back to life. Oh. My concept of orchids in books is heavily colored by um, Nero Wolf. Um, he's one of the detectives... Mm. Uh, from uh, Agatha Christie, I believe, who had a floor in his house dedicated entirely <laughs> to orchids and would basically like retreat there and you'd get a little bit of, you know, the care of orchids and the, the fun ones that she wanted to talk to. I'm pretty sure it's Agatha Christie. But um, anyway, so that's sort of like every time I, I see like people taking care of varieties of orchids where like my mind goes. Well, this story for me redeemed literature about orchids um, because my mom and I have this running joke. There was a novel that came out probably, oh God, probably 20 years ago at this point called The Orchid mm-hmm. Thief. Um, and it like, familiar. yeah, people loved it. I think there was a movie about it. And so my mom and I were like, okay, well, I guess we should read this. And we took it on, I think we took it on some vacation with us and we both started it and got maybe 10 pages in and there was a sort of like Melville-like digression on mooses and we were like no we're not Mm-mm. Mm-mm. no <laughs> and we have never read it since it is our it is in fact our great white whale i i adore that description of those kind of digressions if we're like hey would you like to hear a story about a great white whale before we get there here's 200 pages on knots <laughs> i mean it's not the worst thing no, no, it's fascinating. You, I, I felt like I really learned how to be a whaler, but it really is an accurate description for those kind of digressions that happen in certain stories. Yes, I happen to like them in Moby Dick. Uh, they were not as successful in The Orchid Thief, let's say, from my limited experience. Well, ha- having said initial impressions, I am curious both of what the internet thinks and did you find a pairing for this particular story? Well, there was another sort of great white whale that went on in this <sighs> In this thing, and I won't talk too much about it, um, but there was a very unsuccessful quest for creme de violette in my life, which apparently oh, does not—it does not exist in North Carolina, despite what the internet says. Um, 
And some very disgruntled liquor store employees told me all kinds of wrong things about it. So we're also recording this. Go ahead, BJ. You weren't the only one. Um, (laughs) And my favorite thing is it's not just the internet that is wrong. It is the ABC website that Mm. is hilariously wrong. Like specifically the liquor store website told me there was exactly one bottle in a liquor store near me. And there was in fact not. So um, that did fail. My favorite experience in, in this quest was talking to one of the employees and getting told, we don't have mixed drinks here. You should go to a grocery store. And I just shrugged and <laughs> walked back to the aisles that I was in. I was told that I could substitute creme de cassis, uh, which I already have in my house and specifically decided not to substitute. Uh, anyway, we are also recording this, um, you know, in the morning. So I have done something a little different and non-alcoholic, although BJ, you and I also do have another drink to discuss after this. Um, yes. I, went, I went down to the vault of unclassified plants and uh, pulled up some rosebuds and some jasmine and some tea leaves and stuck them in a pot and poured <laughs> hot water over them. All right. So I am, I am drinking the leavings of the vault this morning and it's lovely. That is so perfectly on theme. Well done. <laughs> and to go with things that are quite a bit less lovely, um, we were tasked with uh, trying to recreate the drink. Um, I think it was Violet Orchid. It was uh, called a Black Orchid. Or Black Orchid, yeah. that's right. Um, and so uh, I had a bunch of blackberries, and I was like, oh, we could you know, press the juice out of these and get something that is violet or black uh, and, and make a drink with... Uh, gin and uh, simple syrup and some lemon juice and I think we did an egg white as well yeah um, we tasked ourselves with drinking it and were successful we did we did drink it yes um, it blackberry was, juice mm. is not a thing to be had outside of blackberries um, unless they are probably a little overripe it was not good it was medicinal yeah yes. that- it's an excellent way of describing that flavor. And sort of um, chalky, th- it was the egg and the blackberry did not do uh, play yeah, nicely did not do well to, and, yeah. and I think there's partial flavor from the blackberry seeds and just sort of all of those things did not combine well to a drink. Unfortunately, which was a uh, counterpoint to, to the story that we have. Yes. <laughs> what? So we have discussed this a lot. What? You... you, you but- You've already suggested that the internet may have some somewhat contrary views to us on the subject of this story. Yeah. Uh, Did you have a few select ones to highlight? So I actually, you know, there were not like particularly interesting ones to um, (laughs) quote verbatim because the internet. But I did want to, because I had a suspicion and sort of hoped that we would all really like this story because it does seem to be pretty firmly in our wheelhouse of things that we like. Um, So I did want to bring up just a kind of general trend that I was seeing in a lot of the Amazon comments, which was, and and the particular like word that was used in no less than 10 of the ones that I read was just meh, which really struck straight at my heart for this story, given how much I loved it. But in ways that we have encountered with the internet reading short stories before, is that the internet doesn't really understand short stories. So everyone who had sort of two-star reactions to this story seemed to think that, like, A, not much happened, and B, that the ending was vague. Did they read the short story in question? Unclear. I suppose there is no way of verifying that, because it seems bizarre. Yeah, I mean, like, the first part, I understand, um... It is a short story, though, so you know that there is presumably a limit into what can happen. And we've actually read stories that try and get a lot to happen within a short story, and they're terrible. Never mm-hmm. works, yeah. Um, yes. And I think we have one that I wouldn't say is terrible, but is a chunkier read, to say the least, mm-hmm. uh, in this collection. And, and we'll discuss it when when we get there. Um, but yeah, I, I find that very interesting, and I wonder if. There, there seems to be people that, that read, uh, especially science fiction and fantasy short stories that either fall into the I prefer YA fantasy and sci-fi camp, 
mm-hmm. and the ones that like space operas. Yes. And when it's not sort of in that area, not enough happens because we're not, you know, we don't have space battles and people flying around and we don't have a clear resolution because the, you know, 16 year old that found their powers and falls in love with, you know, the, the elven king, uh, and they don't live happily ever after. So I don't know. It's 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 interesting to me that this seems to be such a common theme, mm-hmm. especially where I think the ending is very clear. Yeah, um, because unlike I know the myth, I was gonna just gonna bring up the myth because uh, you know I was unfortunately not able to be on that like specific um, recording recording, but I heard you all in the background. <laughs> <laughs> or heard one of you all um, talking about kind of reactions to the ending, et cetera, et cetera, which, which was ambiguous. This is not like, it's very clear what happens at the ending here. No, th- this ending is almost triumphal. This isn't ambiguous in any way. Mm-hmm. This is very concrete about where it is going and what it means and the ultimate accomplishment of everything else that came before it in some ways. Well, um, in, in my mind, I, I, on the first point, this is not an action rich story. There's not necessarily a lot of big things that occur. It has a limited focus, but like we talked about... The <laughs> and they're all scientists. Of, which like... They're all scientists. They're looking at plants for most of this, and that drives a lot of the plot. Yeah. The, but I think one of the things we've said before is one of the things that marks a successful short story is knowing exactly what it wants to be and doing that. This story has a lot of confidence in being small, yes. in having a limited focus, in having a limited goal. And structuring itself to accomplish that. It's, there's nothing extraneous in this. It's very well paced. It's very well focused. I mean, if I had a complaint with the story, I'd almost just complain about the initial setup and it being unrealistic in some ways. But everything else that follows was, I thought, perfectly structured. I think that's the idea of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but I do get what you're saying. Thank you, BJ. So let, maybe it's time to start going through it. And you can start. Spencer, with what that initial setup is. Well, I mean, the setting for this entire story is that the Earth is about to suffer from a s- severe apocalyptic event. A, I think they said it was five mile across uh, asteroid is mm-hmm. about to impact with the surface of Earth in a matter of days. And mm-hmm. luckily, I presume due to advanced technology, they got about 20 years advance notice before it was going to impact. And so by some means, they have successfully evacuated presumably the vast bulk of the human population as well as a as well as certain live animals too although this was going to be one of my and i'm sorry to derail this but i wanted to ask this question now do we know and it's been a while since i last read this so I, i am unclear but do we know like did they really get the whole human population out or did they get the people who quote unquote matter out i think they were getting pretty much everybody because it was saying that like this was kind of the the last of the people there right it was um, unclear if that was, like, developed nations or not. It, it, our main character has very limited knowledge. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't know. Okay. She would She would be told that everybody had gotten out, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that's the press byline. Whether that's true, how could she verify whether yeah. some Maori tribe has been also evacuated to? I mean, Who but knows? also, presumably, like, there are going to be people that are just like, A, I don't believe it. B, I don't care. I mean, sure. sort of, like sort or, of all of those things. So, or, so or I, C, I can't leave my home, as we say. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to mention is that the the asteroid has been doing a number of loops within the solar system, and so yes, they've predicted that it's going to hit the Earth, but they they have this n- quite a number of years to sort of pack up and mm-hmm. ship out. And yes. it's that number of it's that number of years which is very important to our main character because it is made for pretty much all of the junior scientists that are part of the project that she's with that their entire lives have been spent with this specter over them with this idea that the world is finite and everything they're experiencing will inevitably come to an end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that with, that was before she was born. So I, I interpret her as being probably about you know early twenties, maybe maybe twenty five. So they've oh, had wow. a I go later. Interesting. Well, she has she has a master's, but I seems like everybody else that she's with is relatively young. Mm-hmm. What did you mm-hmm. What do you think, Sarah? I thought twenties. Um, I think twenty five is twenty five, twenty six is probably a good estimate in in my mind. Um, simply because it didn't seem like she had had a job before this, and, and, and that this point, was like kind of a beginning to her career. 
I think I remember at one point where she describes like a memory she had with her dad burning leaves at like six or seven where clearly they've gotten notice that the asteroid is coming. And then mm-hmm. the, one of her next line is 20 years later or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So okay. There's, she's somewhere in that range. But yeah. uh, she's part of a project that's basically been left behind as the last humans on Earth to catalog and take gen- genomic samples of as much animal and plant life as possible Presumably so that, A, they can just keep a history of the Earth, but B, when they make it to New Earth, Terra, the Earth that will be, uh, they can essentially bring about the same kind of biome uh, that was present present previously on Earth, make it truly a a new Earth. Yeah, and given where they are, which is the sort of... Yes, I like how you're excited about that, Spencer. (laughs) It it is oddly one of my favorite (laughs) names for anything. I've always enjoyed that name. Um I also like that it's a real place too. The idea of the, of the you know seed vault has always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an actual seed vault for I don't actually know all of the things that are there, um, but it's supposed to contain all sorts of seeds of uh, food and I believe non-food plants. And so this is where they're doing sort of their last ditch uh, effort to catalog as much as possible before they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and our main character is sort of uh, amongst the worker bees, and the worker bees are sort of master's level uh, scientists that you know aren't trained enough or well established enough to be part of the broader scientific, uh, you know, earlier leaving, trying to set up new Terra, um, yeah. and but they have sort of enough uh, scientific rigor and training to to do this cataloging uh, appropriately and reasonably efficiently without sort of outside uh, help. We have also, I'm oh, sorry, I was just going to say, like the point at which where we are in time at this moment um, also means that like this is this effort has been going on for so long that they're not like really finding anything new. No, if they're not expecting to. Right. This is kind of... This is kind of the last cataloging of the dredges, of where people sent in from all around the world everything they could, and they're just trying to make it so there aren't that many copies so they can fill as much as they can in the last few weeks before the end of the world. Yeah, and I think yeah. that that is like that um, we are not like in a process of scientific discovery here, and I think that that also contributes a lot to the background melancholy that um, kind of typifies this story. Right, yeah. and so for things that they might not be able to grow, this is sort of... Uh, the pressing into record mm-hmm. uh, the the plants and flowers and, and things like that rather than you know this is going to be regrown this is sort of like essentially the last people that are looking at these living samples mm-hmm. right. um, and Sarah do you want to um, say your favorite line <laughs> as I knit while we are doing this podcast um, <laughs> yes my favorite line our main character remind me what her name is again Samantha. Samantha um, is describing why she is is good at this job. Um, and she uh, indicates that she has a high tolerance for tedium, which um, hard agree. <laughs> Do you guys remember what uh, the qualification? I mean, as we, as we said, she she has a master's level degree in an appropriate field. She is one of the scientists of the research team, but she's almost on the level of like janitorial staff in terms of her level in this operation. She's yeah. the last people that are left behind to turn off the lights. Yeah. And uh, the last yeah. people, so they're all yeah. quote unquote qualifications. Wait, you guys remember the list of qualifications they had for these positions? Uh, no other family. Yeah. And it was, yeah, no, I think it was re- masters in a related field, no criminal record, no history of mental illness and no living family. Mm-hmm. That's that last one's the big thing that brings them all together is that these are people that have been that are both born under the specter of death, but have also lived tragedy and that they've all been brought together for these last moments of the human race. And so do you think that that's because I mean, they are on their way out as well, but I guess that no one will ever actually see other people again. Right. Because they talk about traveling to Terra and nobody's actually going to get there. Yeah. I'm curious to see what you guys think of how far in the future this is, but the way they describe it is that they will be able to get to New Terra in like a generation or two, mm-hmm. but anyone mm-hmm. who currently leaves on the ships will not see it. Okay. And particularly since all the scientists will be leaving on their own two separate ships, mm-hmm. 
they presumably will either be hard or impossible for them to ever encounter all the other prior ships that could include their family that have already left. Right. Right. Um, I think it's not too far in the future. I think this is supposed to be near future. Um, basically, there 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 isn't any uh, reality-breaking technology that right. they're describing. Right. I mean, presumably, they've got some kind of drive that approaches the speed of light, but it doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, if anybody gets to a fraction of the speed of light, they could get to Alpha Centauri or nearby solar system within a generation or two. Mm-hmm. Um almost the most advanced tech they have is these kind of little preservation pods that they kind of send the plants in. Um, like the one orchid that we get later that's kind of floating in its own little perfectly preserved cylinders that comes to them. But that's, um, in terms yeah, of the setting... That's mm-hmm. epoxy. Like, you can do that essentially now, or glycerol or whatever. Yeah, not necessarily staying perfectly alive, but sure, yeah. And then do you uh, pack it in a shaving cream can and try to get it off I, the island? I love that Jurassic Park informs our understanding of technology. Sure, <laughs> yes. Um, what, I I agree that this is happening not that far in the future. Um, I find it... I struggled for the first page of the story with just the casual hand wave that the bulk of the human population has been evacuated. In my mind, I don't care how far in the future you are. That would just be practically impossible from either a technology or resource level. I don't care how many years you have behind that. Um, it almost doesn't seem like it would be easier to try to divert the asteroid, particularly when you have that much notice, rather than try to evacuate all of the human population. Um, so would you choose astronauts or miners? Uh, I'm not saying Armageddon is fully informed of the process by which I think this would occur, but I think just from a re- if you have the drives necessary to compel the spaceships to get the entirety of the human population off, you can attach those to an asteroid and probably move it a couple degrees, which is all you would need. Um, but then we wouldn't have a story. So I got over that after a few pages. For, for our main character herself, because she's how all the story is built, what can we say about her and what she's gone through before she ever even joined this project? So we learn a lot of that over the course of the story. Yeah. Um, well, do we want to just sort of talk about the, uh, go through this, the plot of this story and then well, come back to some themes? It, it mostly becomes a question of, do we want to do it in the same order that the story is, or do we want to do it in chronological order? Because the order of the story is inherently jumping around as we're exploring her memories as we go through it. Yeah, I mean, we can do it in chronological order, which is clearly where you're uh, going. I don't um, have a preference. But so, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, she had a troubled childhood. And so in these flashbacks, we get um, basically a lot of her interactions with her parents um, and the relationship that she had with her parents and the relationship that her parents had. Mm-hmm. With, with, with this entire relationship very much steeped in the... I, what's the name of this asteroid? It's Finnis or something like that, isn't it? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, Finnis sounds amusingly on point. <laughs> yes, it is Finnis. Okay. Uh, but their entire relationship, her birth, has all been under the specter that this asteroid is coming. And mm-hmm. there's even a certain amount of regret, particularly in her father, that they ever introduced her into the world, given that omnipresence of death that's always about them yeah so sarah what do you think about like how her father's described and and like their relationship i mean what's so interesting about how all of her especially kind of past relationships are described with with her parents is that it's all done under the specter of her present situation Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when you talk about an unreliable narrator thinking about her past, um, I mean, I think that this is like entirely, entirely it for me. Um, and so she has this sort of like grief and loss about, um, about her parents and particularly her father, but there is this like continued, undercurrent of I, dread is not the right word but like there's a lot weird going on um yeah unresolved. with this relationship which unresolved is a, is a really good word for it um and particularly i think the scene where um her father takes her out to see the asteroid mm-hmm. um where they just like if i'm remembering correctly they are going out on this sort of like night long hike at this point um, in the cold, not speaking, don't say anything. He's setting up the telescope. um, And she is clearly, I I think she is clearly scared about what is actually happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
it turns out, and I think that the fact that she is so scared throughout all of this hike speaks volumes about the relationship. Um, but it turns out that he is giving her the one glimpse of the asteroid that will occur. Isn't it the last time they'll see it before it's supposed to hit Earth? Yeah. 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 It is. And it's just a split second. Um, and, and, so it's such a and, complicated relationship. And she's so, even at that age, she's so touched about the idea that he gave that to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That didn't try to share it, didn't try to have it himself. He gave it solely to her. Um, but yeah, like you said, their relationship is such an interesting an interesting mix of where during that walk, she talks about how you I don't talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous to talk or interact with my dad. Any subject whatsoever, it could be bad. Mm-hmm. I, just the, if I talk to him, I usually get punished. And it's when he talks to me that I'm sort of allowed to respond, sort mm-hmm. of. Only sort of, though. It seems like he doesn't really want her to respond all that much anyway. But just, like, be in his presence. Yeah, well, we know, we know that her parents were divorced, presumably. It's hard to tell exactly when. I'm not sure when these events necessarily occur, but they've been divorced and they've been living estranged, and he's, pre- he's presumably been bouncing between them. Um, her mom ends up dying of pancreatic cancer. Her dad is a seriously depressed alcoholic, among other things. I was going to say, but, but before... Well, if we're going in chronological order, we need to uh, go to the uh, school dance because I feel like that's another story that that sort of informs her relationship with her mom. Sure. And yeah. um, it's just a. I feel like it was another short story that Veronica Roth had that she just put in this story. Yeah, it's a great it's like, little short story. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, but you know how much it actually fits um i think it sort of like helps flesh out their their relationship but i you know i i don't see it as like uh it needed to be here well i don't know because it is like the one human um like real moment of humanity not of kind of character development i guess becoming human for her mother Right. Mm-hmm. So, so much of the rest for her mother is very stylized. It's yeah. very much look, looking back on a dead family member kind of style through rose-tinted glasses. About, yeah. you know, we had this wonderful relationship with orchids, and we would work together, and she'd sometimes put my makeup on. It's all through this haze. Mm-hmm. And then we right. get this short story that brings a lot into focus of where she's going to a dance. She gets, I believe it's her, her grandmother's earrings. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, which her m- mom makes her promise to take good care of how important they are to her. And she goes to the dance, and it's the classic, you know, tween dance of where it's uncomfortable, but she has a blast, and she has this wonderful haze memory. And then she's coming home, and when she arrives at home, and she's walking up to her mom to return the earrings, she reaches for her ears, and one is missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I don't know about you guys, but this is, that, that is just bringing back such moments of pain for me of my parents giving me things to protect with whatever is important, <laughs> and then discovering at the last second they're gone, because, oh, good Lord, did that happen a few times growing <laughs> up. Um, but also like a 9 10 12 even you know 15 year old it's like you have to know that it might happen but yeah it's just that like dread like you it's a dread that pretty much everybody can relate to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Sarah, oh i was gonna say and it, it's interesting because like the story is told through the haze of memory so it is kind of hazy but it also has that like dreamlike quality for me partially because like this is the stuff that my like panic dreams are built off of yeah <laughs> Yeah. And so it's the um, only ear- earrings wear, unless, Spencer, you've gotten your ears pierced recently. Probably not. Um, like, I guess it's, like, I have some, like, understanding of, like, what that would be like, but it, is that, like, a, I don't know, do you check your ears when, when you have earrings in? or, or I do, or because I, lo- like I lose it's... them all the time. Like, oh, okay. earrings are like socks for me. They're just one gone. <laughs> Gotcha. We just we just said I don't pierce my ears, so you can't have a collection of my earrings hanging around your house. <laughs> that is like literally the only reason that we don't have collections of your earrings, Spencer. Otherwise, you totally yeah. Would. Were you to wear earrings, Spencer? <laughs> um, and you know the her mom is like she's a good mom in the moment. Like she kind of right. is like you know these things happen. Absolutely, it's really it's not. Okay. It's okay. But she finds her later that night with a flashlight on her knees in the hallway trying to find this earring. Yeah. I lo- love that moment so mm-hmm. much. It's like you said, that is such a humanizing moment of where she does the mom thing. She 
she knew the risk. She takes it in. She doesn't punish a 10-year-old for what a 10-year-old does. But then afterwards, mm -hmm. she does the very much thing we would all do for something we so desperately care about, of where I don't want to just see it, but I will do what I can to find it desperately. Yeah. Yeah. Hiding, hiding the pain to protect the child. Um, and, you know, that sort of pained search is very much related to what what the the task that Samantha has in front of her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because like it there is an underlying in addition to the melancholy of this story, there is an underlying kind of franticness going on mm -hmm. as well that has no outlet. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's this is a methodical process. There is nothing frantic to be done, but everyone is feeling the panic, I think. Especially as we go forward in the story and kind of interact with some of the other scientists in these like weird living situations as well, um, mm -hmm. that kind of ramps up. It, it's it's interesting too, sir, you described it as being, you know, a kind of unreliable narrator that goes into describing her own past. And I think it's really accurate that it seems either purposefully or unintentionally selective on her part, mm -hmm. that she's only allowing herself certain memories or certain glimpses into the past at certain times, maybe even forgotten about some of them. Um, particularly the last dream that she has about her dad of when it doesn't seem like she'd thought about that for years, about the idea of finding those letters that her parents still shared even years after they were divorced and finding those pressings of flowers they were still exchanging with each other. Um, it's almost like she had built an image for herself about what her parents' relationship was because it was informing what her own decisions were kind of going to be for the world. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost denying herself the more complete memory of what either love or caring the two of them still shared, even though they were apart. Yeah, and I think it sort of speaks to the things are often more complex uh, than, than what's on the surface and you want to deal with. Mm -hmm. Or um, even that you can. Like, she actually seems yeah. very unequipped to deal with this. As, mm -hmm. I mean, we all make narratives about ourselves that necessarily leave things out but like you kind of see that process happening here and mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of one of the reason i wanted to get into the her background first because of how much her childhood informs how she goes about her day and what her goals are at the beginning of the story and how mm -hmm. they change mm -hmm. of where she never really got to have a childhood by any definition that her parents were divorced her mom died relatively young her dad was at best an absentee bordering on abusive parent um with complexities but you know a lot of difficulties there and her childhood never really had an opportunity to find her own future to find her own path she even talked about at one point that people before finnis got to decide what they wanted to be yeah they got to pick a job they got to have a life they got to go in any direction because they had a world of opportunities in front of them we've only ever had one our future was always fixed and all we could do was decide how best to go about reaching what was always going to be the same end and that's it's very much a specter of death hanging over you that, you know, is there for the rest of us. But for them, it was never just background. It was always just the life they lived. And that kind of takes us to where the story starts of where she is tying up a little fishing boat at the end of a pier. And we have no idea what that means until later. Mm -hmm. um, and then we sort of go through a little bit about what their sort of day to day is. We meet some of her co-workers and then we get this um, interaction that, that sort of guides the rest of the story, which is um, there are presumably a couple of scientists, but one main scientist um, that's still in the area that has sort of his own um, living space and work area that's separate from where everybody else is, that's a trek outside. And they... The worker bees essentially are tasked with bringing him his meals, um, or at least one or two. Yeah. So they have to kind of draw straws for it. And near the beginning of this story, um, Samantha draws the short straw. Mm -hmm. And so makes the hike out to what is either, I suppose, a solar or geothermal powered greenhouse that this guy <laughs> maintains outside the immediate compound of where his overall job seems to be like a bit of a distance. He's described as being exceptionally important, but they don't necessarily get into details as to how. He's kind of like a, an overall administrator for the project that just makes sure all the cap, all the materials are accurately or carefully preserved as they're put upon the two arcs that they're about to send off. Mm -hmm. uh, for the purposes of this story, he is important because he keeps a lot of orchids. He does, and he reminds her heavily of both her parents in different ways. Yes. Um, and so she has taken lunch to him before, but this time... He happens to, and usually she just sort of drops it off, right? Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But this time they they actually have a, he is around and they actually have a conversation. 
Yep. Which starts a kind of close relationship at the end of the world of where mostly she just listens and he tells her about all the various plants, all the various orchids in particular in the world. Uh, just going through a catalog of his favorites, caring for them together in these kind of last moments, which is very much tied back to her childhood of her and her mom doing that in the orchid nurse, nursery that they shared, orchid hospital that they shared. Mm-hmm. And wasn't it, it, it is a rumor within the community that they're living in because he's kind of a recluse and people don't really interact with him. So it's a rumor that he's not planning on getting on the ship. Yes. And we sort of get at this point that she isn't either. And that's why she has this boat. And they each have their very different reasons for doing it. Mm -hmm. That his reason is essentially that he has lived a full life here. He has had love. He has had loss. He has, accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish. This is his home, and he can't ever just imagine a world without it. And also it's where his wife is buried, and and he's Mm -hmm. sort of very much tied to her and her memory. What's the description that Sam Matthew uses for it, that you've been dying with her in some ways, your body just hasn't realized it, or something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. Um, And we also get a very touching, and this sort of happens, I think, a little bit later in the story, but... Um, as they're talking about the orchids, she asks him which is his favorite. Mm-hmm. Which which he resists at first. At first. Um, uh, and he sort of says, no, I don't have a favorite. It's, you know, they're all beautiful. They're all different. They're all unique and, and fascinating. And she calls him on that shit, basically <laughs> just saying that, uh-huh, if you don't have a favorite, if you don't actually have any preferences, then you don't actually love anything. Because love is built on the idea of having some kind of, you know, preferential focus. And he grudgingly accepts that and leads her over to one that, I don't remember the name of it, I don't have it written down, but it's one that is purposely resembles a wasp, so as to get the, a male wasp to land on it for the purposes of its pollination. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how each of these plants is built around the idea that they can't go it alone, that they can't function as an independent organism, that they can't even you know, seed themselves without aid of a fungus, they can't, spread, they can't spread their pollen without the aid of various pollinators, they are built as part of an ecosystem and function in that way. Um, that's kind of what he most appreciates about them. Talking about his wife most appreciates about them too. About For her, it was possible to square this kind of convergent evolution, this parallel evolution with the idea of God. But for him, he never drew that connection, but kind of loved it about her that she was able to. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, just, they both discuss the end of the world. But, you know, he's just, he has many reasons, but they all square back on the fact that this is his home. She also intends to stay, and she tells him such. How would you guys summarize what, what her motivations are for that? So I think that there are. I think that there are kind of two. There's, and she says that essentially she wants to see the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it seems like she, as we have kind of been skirting around, like she has always lived in a world without hope. And so why would she, like, she does not have the sort of, she believes that she does not have the facility for a future because she cannot hope. Mm-hmm. That her life has been built around the idea that the world is ending. Mm-hmm. That's how it's going to end. So how could she ever escape that? That has been her life and her world from her earliest memory is it, it having an end and everyone being here for it or, you know, being, being a part of it. She's never had an opportunity to dream bigger or imagine anything other than these concrete details. Yes. And his his response to that is interesting. Well, what point do you want to go to next for this? Because eventually we're going to you know come across a, something that snaps her out of that psychology. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I think oh, I don't. I think we can go there. I mean, some of the rest of this story is kind of the build up to everyone leaving, and we get some conversation about kind of like what the other, what her peers are packing and what they're planning, and things like that. But you know, I think it, we really get to the point on this kind of last hurrah. Yeah. And I think the one major thing that happens before this turn is that um, one of her cohort, um, and they sort of each have things that are precious to them, one of her cohort really likes to listen to music. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and so he's essentially taking up all of his, like, storage space. Right. This is records. Yeah. This this is one of those moments, dude. Where I, dude, your space is limited. I know. I know the quality of the of the sound coming on a record is better, but (laughs) download them all on an iPod right now. Um, But I think it's it's a lot of it is the uh, act of doing it and and keeping entertained Mm -hmm. and sharing with people. But Mm -hmm. 
he makes the offer to sort of everybody else to take a record that they want. Mm-hmm. A physical memory. Yeah. Um, a physical memory, but also something to, to entertain them on the journey. And um, it's sort of one of these semi-clarifying moments where he asks Samantha what she wants. And I think this is one of the scenes where we start to see her losing resolve. Mm-hmm. Or each of them, given that all of them have somewhat shared background in the sense that they've had loss, each of them kind of picks a memory that's keyed into that loss or the pleasant memories that they still have separate from it. Mm-hmm. Um, hers, despite what we previously had a lot of evidence of a very difficult or resentful relationship with her dad, is very much squared around her dad. Um, I believe she picked... I'm trying to get to where that album was, because I remember what, which one she picked. Do you have it in front of you, Jay? I do not. It was sort of one of those that I was like, oh, okay, that's... I feel like Pink Floyd would have been on brand, um, but... I think you were. I can. There is a search function. Wish You Were Here, Pink Floyd, yeah. It was it, it was my dad's favorite before it was his his mom's favorite. Mm-hmm. He used to play the title song over and over. Made him cry sometimes. Um, and I think that also sort of speaks to the um, the scientist's favorite. And so that it was his dad's favorite. It was Samantha's dad's favorite album, and her mom's favorite song sort of ties in with um, it. The favorite orchid of the scientist was his wife's favorite. You know, once mm-hmm. he sort of talked through it. Wow. As kind of deciding how she and her cavalcade of friends are going to spend the last few moments together, once we get to like a couple weeks before hell will rain down, they don't really have much to do. That They've kind of cataloged all that they can really catalog to get it safely stored on the Ark. There's not really much more that they can add, so they're just kind of twiddling their thumbs just to make sure everything's stored successfully before they board the Arks that are currently sitting on aircraft carriers in the harbor, which is a wonderful visual, and then head on off. And so... To fill the time, they just said, you know what? This is all we've been doing the last couple months, maybe years. Let's just do a last few for the fun of it. They won't get stored. They won't really matter. But what else are we going to do to spend our last time? These last few are for us. And so they all choose something. And it's it's really actually very sweet because they all kind of go down to the vault and choose something that kind of on brand with what we have been talking about with the records. They all choose something that they have particularly like enjoyed working on or care about um like a, a particular type of plant um mm-hmm. from sifting through the i don't know like boxes of samples that are still sitting down there um sure and samantha chooses um she chooses a flower she chooses something she doesn't know it's an orchid when she chooses it though right she just wanted a flower she wanted a flower she had vague suspicions once she actually looked at it it might be an orchid just based on its shape and structure mm-hmm. um but she sets it down into her very advanced scanner, uh, which goes over the details, and pretty quickly she deduces that this does not match anything that we have a record of. Mm-hmm. And it's and, a very dark flowered, uh, what looks like an orchid. Mm-hmm. And so, having determined this, she starts to get a bit a bit of a pit in her throat and goes off to the resident her, specialist to ask his opinion. And he, his reaction is very funny because he is initially like well this can't be a new thing and then goes into a a furious spencer spiral (laughs) (laughs) so bad um and essentially like forgets about her leaves her in the greenhouse and is deep into like 20 books by the time she goes to find him and he comes to the conclusion that as far as he can tell no one has ever identified this flower before and it is in a color that it shouldn't be, um, because flowers should not are, are never blue and are never black. And this was supposed to, looked black, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, I like how he opens with it too. It's just she's finally going to check on him because he's been gone a while. <laughs> and she walks in, and he just got the same little you know creasy-eyed smile that he always has, and just says, "What shall we call it? The Samantha Orchid?" And her first reaction is to get mad at him. Mm-hmm. And before then, pretty rapidly, as he just starts to go through, yeah, it's amazing. I'm you know, truly surprised. But why are you angry? It's an incredible accomplishment here at the last second. And then she bursts into tears. And I love the way she describes it, too, is that 
Uh, the seed pot in her throat swelled again, and she was a flower, blooming, bursting into tears. Um, and his reaction, too, is just delightful. Because he reads it so perfectly here in this moment, where he says, oh dear, there is so much left for you to see, don't you know that? It's that idea that there is something in the world beyond what she could have expected, beyond what she's built her life around. The idea of there being mystery and new frontiers is something she's never been allowed to have. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, she's she has achieved it in spite of herself, actively in spite of herself. Uh, the world itself has conspired to give her a sense of hope and beauty and longing, and she can't let it go now that she has it, despite every plan that she had to, you know, greet the end of the world. There are still other worlds to be seen. And so we get to the section um, titled Liftoff. Yep, and basically, you know, she it describes the, the boat that she had, um, and it's a spec as she's getting helicoptered out. Mm-hmm. Going presumably to the aircraft carrier to join the Ark to go off to worlds unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of get what the final time of her uh, interaction with uh, the scientist Hagen, basically him describing sort of all these different flowers that he's encountered, sort of just to, um, in many ways, it sort of seemed like his, uh, let me tell you about some of the things that I've seen that, you know, you will, you know, eventually get to experience other things like I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I shared with my wife and, you know, this is, you know, the joy that I had in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we pretty much finish with the, you know, you know, this is what's going to happen. The earth's going to break apart into a fireball, but not yet. And Samantha had always loved autumn. I, lo- I love that last line. It's really beautiful. Um, I mean, like we said, this story was just a delight. It, it's not trying to be some, you know, magnificent, uh, you know, space opera or anything else. It's not trying to be some action field set piece. It's a small, simple story, but really just touches me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in while all of these stories that we're going to talk about in this collection are, of course, because they are dealing with sort of advanced technology and things like that, all of them are exploring to some extent what it means to be human. But mm-hmm. this, to me, is the most human of the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was why I loved it so much. It's not about technology. Um, yeah. And it's actually not really about the effect of technology specifically on our lives. It is about the decisions we make. Um, yeah. This didn't have to be about advanced technology or the end of the world. No. It didn't, didn't need to be grounded in that. It is, mm, I think it really it, it helps. helps. To, it like, helps. I think it needed to be grounded in... Uh, so something similarly melancholy and so like the sure. a- end of the world but there is hope in another world like really you know is the backdrop that i would say the story needs to be good mm-hmm. okay its ultimate focus is on what is it for us as individuals or a species that keeps us going that motivates us to escape from our past in some ways and keep going forward mm-hmm. um so where do we want to go next well, I'm kind of curious to ask you guys. Uh, you're a researcher. You're at the end of the world. You can only bring a couple items. What you bringing? <laughs> presumably for a life, what's going to be an entire life spilt aboard, spent aboard a spaceship. Well, I mean, presumably you have your necessities taken care of for you, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is luxury items, enjoyment items. BJ. Well, I guess you know it sort of really depends on what this sort of. Uh like things are taken care of like are there jobs are or like you just kind of hanging out yeah do you have to just kind for... of keep yourself occupied right and like that's unclear and and that's like for the context of the story that's fine but i think that would sort of inform you know what i take i mean obviously something like a kindle with as many books as i can possibly <laughs> pile on it um i think there are a lot of um things that you know, there are a variety of outlets for it, but something where I can make some things, mm-hmm. um, whether it be, you know, pieces of wood to essentially carve or something like that. Um, I think that would be sort of a, a almost necessary thing to have. Um, I'd probably even consider something like Play-Doh or whatever, because like it's reusable. Mm-hmm. And if this is going to be like for the rest of my life, 
Um, I'd probably not want something that is going to end up destroyed and be like, all right, well, not destroyed, but like once you produce it, it's like you're done. That's been kind of my thought sitting here because like, do, do I need to take like a couple of sheep to supply the wool for <laughs> Which I'm like fine with. I just need to know how to budget my space. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because then you have I to think, reproduce the sheep at some point. I think so. Like a I lot think of considerations. In, in the grand scheme of things, Sarah, you need to bring rabbits. Oh, rabbits are a better yeah. choice. Yes. Good call. Rabbits are call. a better choice. And then you can, you know, produce many more and, har- and, and have Spencer harvest them because he hates all things living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Spencer? Well, I have to presume, like, it wouldn't necessarily need to be something like, you know, literature or knowledge or music, because I'm guessing all of those would be stored in a digital capacity. That if I wanted to access the collective encyclopedias and all knowledge of mankind, that would just be in the computer's databanks. I have to imagine, like, the stuff that they bring is just purely for their own personal enjoyment, some kind of physical either memory or physical object that they can use to spend their time with. How many boxes of socks? I'll make you more (laughs) socks, Spencer. Yeah, it, we'll have it, a nice if, little symbiotic relationship. I'll make you a sock. You can lose the sock. It would be such a futile enterprise for me to try to bring my own socks because a week into our space journey, they are lost in the space plumbing somewhere. It's just, <laughs> they're gone. It's just me walking around without socks. And everybody says, Spencer, where are your damn socks? Like, I don't know. It's a fixed ship. I wouldn't think I could lose them, but I did. Uh, I mean, music's a good call, but again, I think I assume that'd be digital. It would really just have to be memories. I mean, I, I it's... The story even makes fun of the idea that people go back into, you know, their houses to go rescue, you know, photo albums or whatever else during fires. But pictures of my life, pictures of the world, pictures of Earth, I think would matter a lot. Mm-hmm. But those are digital, Spencer, and you can bring them up anytime you want. Not mine, though. Okay. I, mean, I can see pictures everybody else took, but the pictures of my own memories, the own places I've been, unless I've mm-hmm. got time to upload all those digitally, and even then I would still want to bring that digital archive with me. I think mm-hmm. that would matter a lot when otherwise the world is just going to be the four walls of the spaceship wherever we go. Mm-hmm. So if you could choose a pet. A cat seems so ideal for this kind of moment. That's certainly true. Yeah. You, you need an easygoing pet for this kind of limited space. A dog... A poor dog would just put itself into fits while aboard a spaceship. Probably depends on the dog. I mean, they're probably, they're definitely dog. I think Emerson would be perfectly fine. Emerson would be just fine on a space voyage. He is a good little traveler. (laughs) One thing we have to ask is, again, it's a question of advanced tech. Is is this going to be a zero-G spaceship? Or are we getting some kind of, you know, gravity rotation going on here? Because if you've ever seen videos of cats in zero gravity, they don't fare well. I have not, but I can imagine. The military did tests on this because, of course, the military did. Where they Jeez. they put cats on the vomit comet, that that plane that goes up into high orbit and then just mm-hmm. dives, so you get the feeling of zero gravity. So they have videos you can watch. Yeah, it's impressive. Cats are very much built around having a constant sense of balance, a constant sense of where the ground is, and when they can't verify that, the cat shorts out. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Um, another question for me is, um, what do you guys think about, here's a key question, because I, I was pronouncing this very different in my head from how Evan Rachel Wood did. How do you pronounce the name of the Norwegian scientist? I, I went Hagen. I, I went Hagen. She, uh, she pronounced it very much a Hogan. Um, doesn't matter. Uh, what do you think of the idea that he's seemingly trying to build in her for a while, the idea that there is more for you to see, you need to keep moving on, there's life you can live, pretty much in the moment she, she opens up to him that she intends to die with the world. What do you guys think of the fact he does not make that decision for himself? I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I, it made a lot of sense to me. He was very kind of set in what he was doing, which I, I kind Mm -hmm. of respected, but like their interaction in the course or their relationship in the course of the story was so interesting given, um, and it sounds, it sounds trite to say it, but he becomes this surrogate father figure for her, um, which is so works so well given her strained relationship with her with her own father as well as the unfinished business with her own father and he Hagen kind of gives her permission to move beyond that which I think is mm-hmm. is really what happens in this story I mean we have like a a convenient new orchid as a physical manifestation of sure. like a continuation of hope but he gives her permission to hope which which I just I love their relationship so much for that yeah 
he effectively gives her closure that she was never able to have with her dad because mm -hmm. of his suicide, sadly. That she'd come back home in the aftermath of it, but never really had any opportunity to make things up to him. The closest she ever got was finding his letters after the fact, but that was a conversation that she desperately needed to have with him rather than just learn about um, after, he'd already, after she'd already lost him. Yeah, and I, I think that... Um... The, I have two warring concepts of how old he is, and one makes more sense um, in the, like, I'm just going to stay here. Um, I think that, you know, the late 70s to mid 80s, you know, but still reasonably spry makes a lot more sense than the uh, Hollywood version, which creeps in every so often where he's like early 60s and, and like has a bike that he takes out in the summer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a consistent trope, and I'm going to just use the word mentor because I know it tickles you guys <laughs> so much, but the fallen mentor, the fallen father figure is a way of the main character finding their own path and finding their own future. And the fact that it's even framed with the idea of her being a seed pot, a flower that's opening up in that moment together, it, it almost would feel inappropriate if he'd changed his mind and decided to go with. In some ways, he needs to be there for the end of the world, for the end of that aspect of her life, so that she can go on separate from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly one of them had to be there for for the end of the world. Um, yeah. And I don't think it was ever not going to be him. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad... I mean, the story couldn't have gone any other way, but I was... There was, some, there was different ways... It, this is a weird thing since I'm trying to say. I was afraid that in some way she was going to be able to justify staying. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad the story found a way out of that, even if it feels a bit deus ex machina with finding that last planet the second. But like you said, Sarah, I think more important is that event serving as a chrysalis and a final moment in their relationship that had already been developing. And that felt very natural to itself, even without necessarily finding this one miracle planet the last second. Important though that was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are definitely other authors that would have written it that they sort of spent the last moments together and, and he found love again and she found her I like was, closure. And... I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I was, was so, so scared. <laughs> I was so afraid the story was going in that direction. Uh -huh. There were some, there were some lingering glances they had at each other and getting close to each other was like, Oh, please don't go that way. Don't so many it, stories would go that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I know. And there was a moment where like she fell asleep in, his workspace where I had to yeah. reread that wake up scene a couple of times to make sure that I had not missed. Yeah. It seems platonic. I'm imagining there'll never be an adaptation of this. Um, but I, this is the kind of thing of wherever they ever adapted this to the screen. I'm afraid that they would add in a romance plot in some way. Mm -hmm. Just entirely unnecessary breaking the flow of the whole story. In addition, that just didn't need to happen. But that seems like an adaptation choice that a lot of people would make. Yeah. And I would hope that it's the uh, music, musician smoker. Damn, it, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, presumably the, like, who she would most likely actually have a relationship with rather than um, having the Hollywood version of the scientist who's, you know, young 60s. and Yeah, the, the May-December relationship that Hollywood runs on. Mm -hmm. In so many ways. Mm. So... <laughs> You know, when Leo DiCaprio, with a little bit of white in his hair, plays the scientist, um, and she's 22. Oh, God, I can see him in the role. I can, I can hear the fake Norwegian accent now. Oh, boy. Um, so, anything else we need to talk about with this story? Um, I don't think so. Um, but, as this is sort of your... Uh, we're not doing so much of a pairing as a uh, particular order. And, Sarah, this was your uh, cross to bear... Yes, of what we are doing next. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we talked about this, and now I have forgotten where we're going next. <laughs> randomize. <laughs> yes, spot, we are. <laughs> Let me look at the list. Yeah, we are going to do randomize next. Um, By Andy Weir. Yes. Of, of Martian fame. Yes. Of Martian fame. And so um, I think that we were going to do um, randomize next. Do we want to run through the whole list of what we're doing? BJ? Um, sure, we can quickly run through the list. I don't know if you want, you have all your uh, things picked out, but um, we can definitely... picked out? What things? Like, like the order of everything oh, picked out. Yeah, well, we had, we had talked about it a little bit. I am blanking on it somewhat right now. I think we were going to do randomize next and then 
you have arrived at your destination. Is that right? Um, I think that's what we talked about. And okay. like, again, you know, I don't know how much that uh, matters. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, um, and then we also have Summer Frost, The Last Conversation, and Emergency Scan. Which we are definitely ending with. Right. Um, cool. Well, this was fun. I am glad that you all enjoyed this story as much as I did. Um, this was a real treat for me. I read this on vacation and it was exactly what I needed. Sarah, I have to ask just closing thought you having read prior works by our author, does this fit a consistent theme for her or was this a bit of a change of pace? compared to the one story you've read before. (laughs) The one story. She is... Expert in your field. She is very into, from my two two sample size, um, she is very into moody female protagonists. Interesting. Well, you already recommended the last one, and now having read this short story, I'm all the more motivated to give her another try. Yeah, I think the the novel that I read was very good. It was odd, but it was very good. So um, if... People are looking for other things that are odd, but but very good. Where might they go? <laughs> Can't guarantee the good part, but the odd. We own the odd. Yes. Um, we have all of our content on MangumTalks.com. Um, we have a uh, stream for this uh, podcast series, Mangum Reads. Um, you can find it on Apple iTunes, uh, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your uh, podcasts and hopefully in the near future our podcast within a podcast pottering around may have its own separate stream so you don't have to pick and choose um, and be sort of surprised when we have multiple on the same uh, stream um, we also have a number of other podcasts including uh, Mangum Talks TV which supposedly is going through the uh, Mandalorian uh, in preparation and then continuation in season two uh, with Terry and Spencer and so hopefully you uh, like all of our stuff and, and subscribe to our various podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can submit those at mangumtalks.com or on our Facebook page, which is uh, Mangum Reads. And with that, I'm looking forward to talking about randomized with you guys uh, next time. All right, sounds good. Bye.